People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Visit Killarney Mall this festive season for your festive gifting, inspiration and shopping. With over 50 vendors to choose from, you will be spoiled for choice. Go through to Killarney Mall on 7th of December for their festive market that is not to be missed. Visit www.kilarneymall.co.za or call 011-646-4657 for more info. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Got a very mixed bag of really great reads starting the holiday season. So we're looking for those type of books that will keep you riveted, inform you, and keep you entertained. And the second half of the show today, we have South African celebrity chef, Jono Proudfoot, Jono Proudfoot coming in to talk about The Real Meal Revolution. That's his new book. That will be the second half of the show. We're going to jump straight into a book called Give Me Your Hand by Megan Abbott. Megan Abbott is a rising name in th- thrillers, especially with strong female stories. The book Give Me Your Hand came out earlier this year. Did someone do something to you? Kit asks her friend Diane in the first chapter of Give Me Your Hand by Megan Abbott. Did someone hurt you? The 16-year-olds are doing their homework together and Diane's been in a strange mood ever since the discussion of Hamlet in the English class earlier in the day. He's got no conscience, Kit proffered after her friend struggled to read Claudius' speech aloud to the class. Does she think this could actually happen in real life? Diane asks Kit. Can someone have no morals? Yes, Kit replies without hesitation. But then she's scared. Has someone done something terrible to her friend? No one did anything to me, Diane replies. I'm talking about something I did. I'm talking about myself. Megan Abbott has written some of the smartest and most engrossing literary thrillers you'll find on the market today. And Give Me Your Hand joins her previous books, The Fever, Dare Me, You Will Know Me, as no exception. They're all the more satisfying because she inverts the normal idea of a girl as a victim, instead presenting her readers with female characters bubbling over with agency, dark and violent as it may be. Dare Me, a previous book, was a thriller about the cutthroat world of high school cheerleaders, while in The Fever, teenage girls fell prey to mysterious seizures, and in the book You Will Know Me, Abba turned to young gymnasts with their eyes on Olympic gold medals. Toxic teenage friendships are Abbott's speciality, but she's gone above and beyond in her new book, Give Me Your Hand, not least because it explores the longer-term ramifications of a close adolescent bond. The high school set sections are flashbacks. The book's main action takes place 12 years later. Kit is now determined postdoc student in a lab that's about to begin a pioneering study into premenstrual dysphoric disorder, PMDD. Like PMS, the book says, only much, much worse. Some women are afflicted by days of sickness. One study participant vomited so violently she tore her own esophagus, while others descend into fits of intense fury. They kill their boyfriends with frying pans or shake their babies. Kit desperately wants one of the three coveted spots on the study, but she's thrown when competition turns up in the form of her former friend, Diane. 
the two haven't spoken since Diane told Kit about the terrible thing she'd done, a secret Kit carried with her ever since. Abbott evokes the ruthless world of early Curie academia with great aplomb. This ready-made tension adds a dose of rocket fuel to a narrative that's already pulled as taut as a drum. This is a novel about female rage, but it's also about female resilience, ambition, and hard work. That's the book, Give Me Your Hand by Megan Abbott, just set the scene for where the book starts off. Um, It's like a spring that's ready to just jump and can you control where all these elements are going to go. Thriller, great insight into people. That's Megan Abbott, Give Me Your Hand. We'll be back with more books straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book. We've just finished talking about Megan Abbott's Give Me Your Hand, published by Picador. The next book we're going to look at is called Berta Isla. It's written by a Spanish writer, Javier Marias, published by Hamish Hamilton. And it's a spa thriller, but more than just the spying and the espionage. Berta Isla is a young woman who falls in love with and marries a spy called Thomas Nevinson. The couple first meet during Franco's dictatorship in the 1960s as students at secondary school in Madrid. While Berta is a fourth or fifth generation madrileña, Thomas is Anglo-Spanish and has an extraordinary gift for languages. They choose each other as life partners with a strange and touching certainty. Their conviction that they are meant to be together is particularly striking in a book that so often asserts our powerlessness over our fate and questions our basis to make judgments about anything. Thomas's talents for languages and mimicry comes to the attention of MR6. He declines the offer, which is made through his tutor, Peter Wheeler, but then finds himself a suspect in a murder inquiry. The intelligence services, the exact branch is never made clear, use the murder accusation as a means to entrap Tom in a career as an infiltrator. Tom now embarks on a double life, posing as an embassy employee and raising a family in Madrid with Berta, while frequently travelling abroad to take part in undercover operations. He doesn't tell Berta and she accepts his absences unquestioningly, unquestioningly, until a threatening encounter with the creepy pair of IRA sympathizers forces her to recognize that Thomas is involved in intelligence work. Powerless to influence him, often unable to contact him, Berta's love and patience are tested over decades as the turbulence of the 1970s gives way to the Falklands War in the early 1980s, at the end of the decade the collapse of the Berlin Wall, and in the beginning of the 1990s the collapse of the Soviet Union. For much of this time, Thomas is absent, suspected dead. Berta, we realize, is becoming something she feared as a schoolgirl, someone whose story, to quote the book, did not merit being told by anyone, or only as a fleeting reference when recounting someone else's more eventful and interesting life. This is not a novel about spycraft, the drama of going undercover, or even despite much allusions to the subject, the moral choices attending the profession of secret agents. 
The author Javier Marias is above all interested in negative states, waiting, uncertainty, insignificance, ignorance, deception and self-deception. Throughout the book, he enacts his character's various degrees of puzzlement in winding digressions about the mists and vapors that obscure our knowledge of each other and ourselves. Javier Marias is a best-selling author in his native Spain. He's often mentioned as a potential candidate for the Nobel Prize. What's so interesting about this book is that normally people on the list as potential Nobel Prize winners for literature, their books are difficult to get in. They're challenging reads. Javier Marias' books are very accessible. They are literature, but they are accessible at the same time. So that's Berta Isla by Javier Marias, and it's published by Hamish Hamilton. The next book is a debut novel by a Nigerian authoress, Oyinkan Braithwaite. lives in Lagos. The book has been on every single must-read list for the second half of 2018, and it's also made many of the lists of books of the year. The title is one of the best titles for a book this year, and as soon as I read it, you must probably get a smile on your face, or slightly um, with a slight little bit of aftertaste. The book's called My Sister, the Serial Killer. It's a short book, and it's a dark comedy. The main protagonist in the book is Ayula. Ayula is a nurse. She she's a head she's she's a nurse working in a hospital in Lagos. Um she's a plain Jane. She doesn't think that there's anything about her appearance that would recommend her above anyone else as an object of anyone's affections or love or lust. But she has a sister, Corida, and Coridi is a beautiful, beautiful girl. She just has to walk into a room and every single man looks at her with desire in their eyes and all the women look at her with jealousy. Corida is involved in fashion. She has her own fashion line. She uses social media a lot to promote her, her designs. And she has an endless line of boyfriends. But the crux of the whole novel is that Kuridi kills her boyfriends. We don't know why, but she becomes a boyfriend serial killer. And when she does kill her boyfriend with a knife, she doesn't know how to dispose of the body. So she will call her sister and Ayula, a very, very loyal sister, will go and help Kuridi dispose of the body. Okay, so far, so good. But now, Ayula is in love with one of the doctors, Tade, who works at the hospital where she is employed. And she's doing everything in her power to get Tade's attention. One day, her sister, Karidi, walks into the hospital. Tade automatic, instantly notices her, and they become an item. And Ayula is torn. Does she try save the man who's the, the object of her desires from her sister's murderous ways? Or does she stand by her sister and let this relationship play its way out? It's, to, it's just play itself out. Dark, very humorous, very comical, and in many ways a very strong 
comment on modern society, not just Nigerian society. This is a book where layers and layers of motivation keep getting peeled away to show what's really going on. Why is there such a sense of loyalty from Ayula to her murderous sister, Karidi? Uh, it's very entertaining. You'll see it in all the bookshops. It's on everyone's list of books to read or best books of the year for 2018. That's My Sister, the Serial Murder by Oyin Khan, Breakthwaite. It's published by Atlantic Books. And it's always great to support debut fiction and debut African fiction. The next book we're going to look at is, we'll just do a quick short review. It's one of those books that can be put into the same um, category as The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Night Time, talking about kids with autism. The book's called The Color of B. Larkham's Murder. Jasper is not an ordinary boy. In fact, he would say he is extraordinary. Synesthesia paints the sounds of his world in a rainbow of colors that no one else can see. But on Friday, he discovered a new color, the color of murder. He's sure something has happened to his neighbor, B. Larkham, but no one else seems to be taking it as seriously as they should. They don't even believe she's dead. The knife and the screams are all mixed up in his head and he's scared that he can't quite remember anything clearly. But where is B? Why hasn't she come home yet? Jasper must uncover the truth about that night, including his own role in what happened before it's too late. So here it's not so much autism, it's synesthesia, uh, but it's looking at an incident from a child who's got a very, very different perspective on reality. And that's published by HarperCollins and it's written by Sarah J. Harris, The Color of B. Larkham's Murder. We'll be back with a few more books straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Got a few uh, non-fiction books to talk about. The first one is a book that I've mentioned on the show a few times. It really is a doorstopper of a book. It's got over 600 pages with all the footnotes and the index at the back. It goes all the way into 700 and almost 760 pages. It's written by an Israeli journalist, Ronen Bergman. I have mentioned the book on the show. Um, it's just it's a great book for holiday reading, and it's recently been listed by many, many newspapers and magazines as one of their books of the year. Just to quote from The Economist, last, year's, last week's issue, Rise and Kill First, The Secret History of Israel's Targeted Assassinations by Ronen Bergman, published by John Murray. For this impressive work of reportage, the author not only spoke to hundreds of Israeli spies, but also convinced them to hand over a trove of documents. Then he constructed a thrilling narrative of extreme bravery and compromised morality. So that is what The Economist said in their books of the year for Rise and Kill First. Who is Ronen Bergman? In South Africa, we might not have been exposed to his writings. He's, a senior, he's the senior correspondent for military and intelligence affairs for Yediat Achronot, Israel's largest daily paid newspaper, and a contributing writer for the New York Times magazine, where he sp- reports on intelligence, 
national security, terrorism, and nuclear issues. So he's perfectly placed to write about Israel's targeted assassinations. Bergman is the author of five best-selling Hebrew-language nonfiction books and The Secret War with Iran, which was published in the United States by, the, by Free Press. Bergman is the recipient of the Sokolov Prize, Israel's most esteemed award for journalism, and the B'nai B'rit International Press Award, among other honors. A member of the Israeli Bar, he graduated with honors from the University of Haifa Faculty of Law and clerked in the Attorney General's office. He's a winner of the Shevening Scholarship for the, from the British Foreign Office. He received a Master's in International Relations from Cambridge University, where he was also awarded his PhD in history. And the book is the result of hundreds and hundreds of interviews, not only interviews, but also the handing over of secret documents with many people in the Israeli intelligence establishment, a number of who have since passed away after they gave the interviews with Winnen Bergman. And it's a it's an account going all the way back to pre-state of Israel targeted assassinations um, from all parts of the Israeli establishment, not only Mossad, but the RDF as well. And it's, it's the secret of it's – it's, it's the secret history of Israel's targeted assassinations. Also, the, the fact that Israel has to do this, the – one of the one of the big surprises in the book is that the Mossad had a Nazi scientist on their payroll. They needed to f- keep up to date with what the different Arab regimes were researching in the 1950s, 1960s. And one of the nuclear programs in Egypt was r- drawing on a Nazi scientist and uh, in order to know more about the, the breakthroughs that the Egyptian nuclear program was achieving they paid a Nazi scientist who had escaped from Europe was given sanctuary in Franco Spain and in Egypt to become an informer for them it's a really strange setup in Israeli intelligence history and then another, we can't call it celebrated, but compromised, it's a compromised um, operation that Roland Bergman does focus on is the assassination or the, the attempted assassination in Dubai, a group of Israeli Mossad agents where the, the Dubai government caught them all on video uh, and was able to track their their, their entrance, their, their entry into Dubai through following their passports and capturing, the, capturing this team of Mossad agents on camera and then making that film public knowledge, compromising a huge number of Mossad agents. And Ronald Bergman does say that in Israel, because everyone knows everybody else, that almost everybody knew either directly or indirectly these compromised Mossad agents. People were going onto TV to look to see who were the agents who were compromised. So that's um, the book Rise and Kill First by Ronan Bergman. It's published by John Murray and it is available at the moment. One last book before we 
bring our interview guest uh, Jonah Proudfoot in to talk about the Real Meal Revolution. Frederick Forsyth's new thriller, The Fox. What what would be the ultimate weapon today for a country to have? What can you imagine if you could have a hacker who could hack into any computer? And there are many computers that have government's secret, secret, secret branches of governments will uh, will uh, protect with huge amounts of firewalls. Frederick Forsyth asked the question: If you could find a hacker who could break into any computer, you could have an ultimate weapon that could be used to bring down almost any government. And that's what he investigates in the book, The Fox. It just happens that this hacker is a 17-year-old British national who is really on the Asperger's spectrum. He stays at home. He cracks any database, any computer, no matter what the firewalls are. If he could get into Iran's nuclear program and compromise their nuclear research, or if he could play cat and mouse games with Putin, if he could try compromise the North Koreans' nuclear program, how would the world react? And how do you protect someone who is so, so, so valuable? It's a great story, and one of the great things about Frederick Forsyth is that he takes a huge amount of current affairs, puts it into the book, and it reads clearer than um, any newspaper. And you just get this feeling that you're in the hands of an absolute master storyteller, thriller writer, and a person who's really got his finger on the pulse of espionage as well. So that's Frederick Forsyth, The Fox, published by Bantam Press. It is available in shops now. I really enjoyed it. I'm a news junkie. This is the perfect thriller that combines news together with exciting storylines, looking at the ultimate weapon, a 17-year-old hacker who can break into any any computer anywhere in the world. Now we have the opportunity to welcome into our studio John O. Proudfoot. He's a South African celebrity chef. He's an entrepreneur. He's also an adventurer. Uh, welcome to Chai FM Studios. Oh, thanks very much for having me, Stephen. Pleasure to be here. It's our pleasure to have you here. I'm going to ask you before we get to the book and everything else. Well, we're going to get to everything else in your, everything yeah. else in your life first. <laughs> Can you please introduce yourself to our listeners in your own words and on your own terms? Okay, so my name is John O'Proudfoot, and I'm uh, sort of. I would say I used to believe I was a young entrepreneur, but I'm getting on <laughs> mid thirties entrepreneur uh, from Cape Town. Uh, passionate about um, exercise, healthy eating, and lifestyle optimization, uh, and that involves the balance between, like, optimizing the balance between family, um, your career, and your health and your social life. Before we get to the real meal, yeah, I'd like to ask you just to elaborate on everything you just mentioned right now. What is your philosophy of life? So, you know, I, I believe that we shouldn't necessarily put all of our effort into becoming um, successful. I think the I think real success is real happiness. So when you're in a position where you're present at every moment and enjoying every moment, 
Um, so, so I suppose my philosophy is, is to work hard enough to create, to get as close to the sort of luxurious life you'd like if that's what you're going for, but to not let your work compromise on uh, relationships that you have, um, time that you're spending with your children, and, and most importantly, your health, and that's where my, my business is today. And for me, health looks like mental health, uh, physical health, your strength, but also your nutrition um, and mental health. Let's go first to the entrepreneur, and then we'll get to the adventure as well. Sure. The entrepreneur. What businesses have you started? So I had a business when I was um, when I was nineteen. Uh, or yeah, no. So when I was twenty-one, I started a business with a restaurant I worked for in Cape Town called Ginger Restaurant. It was in the top ten restaurants in the country. I had a catering company with them where we did that sort of top ten dining experience, but in people's homes. And then from there, I, I decided, like, I was so passionate about business, but I actually didn't have any of the skills and knowledge. So I went off and I studied accounting, and um, and I got a degree in accounting. Um, and then, you know, while I was doing that, I worked in wine marketing, and then I was in financial management for this big catering company in Cape Town. After that, I uh, yeah, went on sabbatical, lived in Champagne, then came back and started trying to get my first deal together. And I suppose my first real successful deal was, was – um, this this real meal revolution in combination with this uh, adventure swim that I did, and they're actually all inextricably linked. Uh, the swim I needed to raise money for charity through. Just the talk swim. about it. Talk about the swim, but just yeah, okay. It's okay. not just the swim. Okay, okay, no. So the, the swim. Story. Yeah, so the swim. My friend and I decided after reading Lewis Pugh's book about swimming in the polar ice caps, we wanted to swim from Mozambique to Madagascar, which is a in a straight line. It's about four hundred kilometers. And we were going to do it on stages, so, you know, sleeping on a boat at night, but then swimming next to a dinghy, using your GPS coordinates to decide where you start every day, um, and, you know, swimming. We swam, we ended up, so we did the swim, we swam about 19 kilometers a day, um, and, uh, and yeah, so, so in preparing for that swim, we needed to raise money for charity to sort of, because of the, the deal we had with the charity, and, and uh, for that, we decided we wanted to write a cookbook based on the foods we were going to eat while we were training for the swim. And that's when, um, you know, I'd been watching Noakes' success, promoting the low-carb way of eating. My wife had had significant success following that way of eating. So I'd seen that it had been successful. You know, the sports scientist was pushing it, and it was good for weight loss. So I figured, let's write a book on, on, on that diet and then use that to raise money for charity. So that deal, you know, we managed to raise money for charity and assemble this book at the same time. Ended up raising about a million and a half for charity with the book. And then when the book became so successful and people started transforming their lives, I launched um, realmealrevolution.com off the back of that. And we started selling an online program to teach people how to adapt to a low-carb diet. So that's actually the entrepreneurial and the adventure all in one. Exactly, yeah. They're all interconnected. Yeah, yeah. You, you are a chef. That's right, yeah. Where did you learn to be a chef and what influences come into helping you decide what you cook and recipes? So I learned the, the first day I, I, became, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I finished school. And I, I went and I found myself working as a casual at my friend's, you know, parents, friends, catering company for one day. And at the end of that day, this was 2002, this guy slipped me 200 rand. And I, and I thought, like, I just spent the whole day having, like, the best time, and I just got paid for it. Like, this is what I'm going to do with my life. And it was that exact day I decided, like, okay, this is where I'm going. So from there, I've always had a passion for food, and I, it was the first thing that I felt I was really good at. Um, had you cooked before then? 
I mean, I'd watched Jamie Oliver, and I think one of the things that happened was I found myself stuffing lime and coriander, um, like paste underneath the skin of chicken legs, which I'd seen um, Jamie Oliver doing. So, so I got to do that, and I'd never done it before, and it just like it just blew me away. It was so awesome, and people love the food. So, I obviously, I felt really, you know, it's really good for your ego when you cook food for people and they dig it. So. Um, so that was how it all started, and then from there, obviously, I went to study and became a professional chef. But but yeah, what what inspires my my recipe creation these days is you know it's multifaceted. So I like to use recipes as, as like a tool or solving a problem. So um, so sometimes it's when I'm compiling a cluster of recipes. I say, okay, well, what is the user? What is the the, the person cooking actually going to? How they're going to benefit from these recipes? So. You know, this book that I wrote, Low Cop Cooking, is about um, creating, giving a whole lot of inspiration. You know, so people have been following low-carb diets for a few years. They get bored of the low-carb foods and they need some more inspiration. For me, when I'm cooking for myself, it's definitely, um, you know, I just try and add so much stuff. I just try and, like, <laughs> see, I, you know, I, I think that you have to fail to, to progress. So I, I just try and push the boundaries and try and experiment with new flavors. What is the real meal revolution? The real meal revolution is, I would say it's a, a social enterprise in a way. Um, but it's, it's, it's a movement um, and it's a combination of like sort of my commercial entity, um, avid fans. Um, there are a few NGOs and a lot of doctors who are all kind of rebelling against um, you know, standard unnecessary pharmaceutical practices, poor medical practice, and um, and mass produ- mass produced food. Um, you know, mass produced highly processed food. So I think all of these people together are trying to move the population back into a position where they're eating real food, food that humans were designed to eat. So we're bec- we're, we're pushing to become more human. What are your big focuses in in your in in the real meal revolution? In the business or in this particular book? In, in the, yeah, in, your, uh, in the book, in the book, okay. in your in your style of cooking. Yeah, so so in the style of cooking, this particular book is aimed at is aimed at teaching people how to become better cooks. So I believe there are two different types of people. You get people who can follow a recipe, and then there are people who actually know how to cook. And they're very different, um, <laughs> you know, and, and it's the same with diets and people who know how to follow diets and people who know how to look after themselves. So the idea with this book was to get people passionate and interested in cooking. So the, the book has got um, flavor combinations from about 40 different countries' cuisines and as many techniques as possible. So the idea is if you cook through this book, you will go on, a, on like a culinary adventure. And at the end of it, you will have learned and practiced so many different flavors and techniques that you will actually become a person who knows how to cook rather than just a person who knows how to follow a recipe. Uh, so that's the message that I want to get across in the book. And the main point of that is that if you're focusing on developing a skill rather than focusing on like losing weight or improving your health, if you take interest in, in what you're cooking and the flavor, it takes your mind off diet and, diet and losing weight becomes a side effect. We're in conversation with John O'Proudfoot. He is the the founder of The Real Meal Revolution, the new book that is just published by, it's been published by Robinson, it's part of Little Brown in the UK, is low-carb cooking, 300 low-carb, sugar-free and gluten-free recipes. These phrases, low-carb, 
Yeah. And then low, um, sugar-free and also gluten-free. So this is the whole way that you are cooking. Yeah. When we come back after the ad break, I want you to discuss, are these just fads or are these long-term lifestyle approaches that we should have with our food? We, everyone is listening straight after the ad break. John O'Proudfoot's going to be answering these questions. <laughs> People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We are in conversation with John O'Proudfoot. He's the founder of The Real Meal Revolution. His latest book in this, I call it a franchise, is Low Carb Cooking, 300 Low Carb, Sugar-Free and Gluten-Free Recipes. And I just asked Jono before, before the ad break, low-carb, sugar-free, gluten-free, are these lifelong decisions in our cooking? Are they buzzwords? Or are they just a fad? Yeah, so fads, you know, it's interesting. Um, so if we look at the biology first, I think, I think everyone will agree that sugar, sugar is bad for you, uh, especially too much sugar. And that's and that's based on the biology around um, like look and so I'm going to give you the chef version, but you know um, it's a it's about how your body metabolizes glucose. So sugar, if you look at it on you know in really layman's terms, is a, just a highly highly refined carbohydrate because it still ends up being glucose in the bloodstream. So if you if if you notice that sugar is bad for you, you know if you eat enough carbohydrates, they'll be bad for you as well. You'll have the same effect. So the biology says that. You know, sugar and carbohydrates are bad. People who remove carbohydrates, I've seen that it happen. They remove carbohydrates and they lose weight. I think that the fad element is when people package diets in these, you know, quick fix things and, and they lose weight. And, and, and fad is actually a human behavior. It's not about the biology. So I think, like, fads are, are, are driven by, by people. You know, we've seen, even on our online program, people without support generally only stick to a diet for six weeks. So yeah, then it is. Then, but the but the fad part of it is not the diet; it's the it's it's the it's the people, um, and and the biology behind gluten is is interesting as well. Um, gluten gluten has a component of it called gliadin, which binds to the uh, cell walls of your um, of your gut lining. And without getting too complex, basically your your gut lining is supposed to be a, um, a, a selectively permeable membrane. So once nutrients in your gut are refined enough. They pass through the cells naturally into your blood, and your blood's receiving like high quality nutrients. And what gluten does is causes your cells to separate, which means, you know, all sorts of stuff bypasses that filtration system and passes straight into your into your bloodstream. So if you imagine you had stomach acid in your in your blood in your in your gut, when you damage or, or open the gaps between these cells, you have these. Um, you know, I don't want to use the word pathogen. It's very like sort of uh, fringe medicine, but like you have sort of bad things going into your blood, and then you end up pumping that blood all the way through your body. So, or, or, you know, when people say, "How can you get a rash from gluten?" or "How can you get a headache from gluten that's in your tummy?" it's actually that the gluten's activating a process in your stomach that's allowing all this stuff. So you're essentially marinating yourself in in uh, in bits of your gut. So, 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 so as far as the biology is concerned, sugar-free, low-carb, and gluten-free, they're all timeless. It's it's the way these diets are packaged, and you can see like all these different diets: South Beach diet, Dukan diet, the Atkins diet. Those are all sort of fatty to an extent, but they're all based on the same principle, which is that removing carbohydrates from your diet will improve your health. 
So there's a lot of theory that this is all based on. Yes, yeah. And science, not theory. Yeah, <laughs> like, scientific, yeah, yeah scientific, scientific theory. theory. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and you you haven't scrimped on the research either. So you've no, done yeah. you've done you've done your part of the process. Yes, yeah. Before you've put together a recipe book. Yeah. So we 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 get to benefit from all that research by cooking great meals. Yes. And then also living a healthy lifestyle. The how did a Captonian chef get a publishing contract with Little Brown in the UK? That's an interesting story. Okay, so so it, it, it actually happened in the strangest way. So our initial publishing contract was with a publisher in Cape Town called Quivertry, and we, I mean, it was an amazing relationship, and um, obviously it created a very successful book. On my wedding day, so what happened? My uncle was working for a tiny publishing house in London, and. Um, he, the CEO and the owner of that publishing house passed away the same, the, like the same time Real Meal Revolution, the original, was published. And their, their company was then acquired by Little Brown, which is owned by Hachette. It's the second biggest publishing group in the world. So he found himself as a publishing director in one of the biggest publishing groups in the world. And on my wedding day, he, say, he emailed me and said, congrats, you know, to you and Kate. And... Um, you know, we'd like to publish your book internationally. So it was, a, you know, so it's, you know, a tiny bit of nepotism, I guess you could say. <laughs> but but now, um, you know, three books down the line, we have a very, very good relationship with them. In fact, we have a, a unique relationship in that um, because we have um, camera staff and, and stylists and everything in Cape Town, it's actually cheaper for them to have the book produced, the, the file, like produced and assembled in Cape Town. So, um, so, they, so we actually get to have a lot more creative control over the book, um, which is awesome. So we actually shot this book in my studio at home. Did you find this is a segment of the publishing industry that's super, super competitive? Cookbooks. Yeah, it's you know, and it, and it's hugely competitive in the UK. I mean, they told me they won't even publish in October because in in October it's Nigella, it's Jamie Oliver. So they said, you know, we'll <laughs> we'll let you do your thing in October um, in South Africa or in November in South Africa, but we'll give it the bigger push in in January. It's hugely competitive. I think in South Africa it's interesting because. If you look at the best-selling cookbooks over the last few years, especially since um, 2013, it has been the low-carb cookbooks that have sold the most. So we're fortunate in that, you know, low-carb in terms of a percent of population, the, you know, it's it's a massive here compared to how big it is, you know, in other countries in the world. So yeah, so Real Meal Revolution as a brand has outsold its its competitors, uh, competitors in the low-carb space and in the cookery space. Um, which is great, but it, but it is highly competitive. Yeah. So you're really taking on the, the sharks in the tank. <laughs> yeah. how, how did you come up with your recipes? Um, yeah, great question. So being an accountant, it started with a spreadsheet. Um, I wanted to create a good balance of flavor and texture and variety for every single ingredient. So um, in the first book, we launched uh, the green list of low-carb foods, which is about 69, 70 foods that you can eat your full with and not really uh, put on weight so so that was the base i wanted to expand it was like a culinary study on on the on the green list so i wrote that in one column and then added on you know and then i looked at all the different flavors around the world that that sort of like english speaking people so my markets are canada australia england south africa um and you know a bit of new zealand so i looked at like the flavors we cook and they're about 40 cuisines you know middle eastern french british you know pacific rim and then I, I basically said, okay, well, these are the ingredients. These are the different flavor combinations I want in another, in another column. 
and and then I looked at all the textures and techniques that work with each one of these ingredients. So with every ingredient, I've tried to have three or four recipes that have different flavor combinations and different textures. But so what I ended up with was a spreadsheet that said, okay, you need a um, a green bean recipe from Greece that is a steaming steaming technique and then it's like cool okay we'll hit the internet and look at steaming recipes that are greek that involve green beans and it was like fill in fill in the dots you know write them up test them and then produce the final and result also add in your own little oh absolutely creativity to the recipe yeah and and this was unique in that the first the first book uh, in fact the first two are you know we created recipe and flavor combinations from scratch whereas with the volume of these recipes what i really wanted to do was bring to people's attention the amount of recipes that are low carb that already exist. So there was very little um, what what I call origination, and it was much more research. So we looked all over the world and found recipes that people are eating that are low carb and put them together. So there's nothing like there's nothing like wild and out there. They're just like really cool, delicious recipes that have sort of stood the test of time. We in conversation with John Proudfoot. He's the the founder of the Real Meal Revolution. His latest book published by Robinson is Low Carb Cooking, 300 Low-Carb, Sugar-Free and Gluten-Free Recipes. We'll be back with more conversations straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're in conversation with John Proudfoot. He's a South African celebrity chef. He's also an entrepreneur and he's an adventurer, having swum from Mozambique to Madagascar. And the book that we're discussing is The Low-Carb low Cooking for the Real Meal Revolution. I paged through a few times, John, looking for desserts, and there were none. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a great question because, you know, I think, I think um, in the first book we had, a, we had a, a flapjack recipe which had blueberries and uh, an almond flour and coconut flour. And it was so so weird because every other recipe in the book was a real food recipe. It had sort of meats and vegetables, and there were you know ninety six other recipes. And 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 what the what the public took out of it was like, cool, we can eat almond flour and coconut flour with gay abandon. And uh, and like so so now there are all these banting or low carb products on shelves that that are that are essentially not low carb. They are lower carb and gluten free. And um, and because they've been perceived as as sort of healthy or within the sort of banting or low carb paradigm, um, I've I've met with people who actually just like skip a meal and have a slice of um, you know low carb cheesecake because the crust is almond flour. So, so and and that and that sits. So my philosophy sits behind a principle about um, appetite control, and human beings are supposed to naturally control the appetites. You don't have to tell the lion in the wild like you know how to control your appetite so you don't get fat. So um, and and sweetness drives appetite we, we are designed to to be stimulated by by sweetness for whatever reason you know that we needed in the wild so so even if you are eating a sugar-free dessert it's it's an unnecessary meal as far as your health is concerned obviously there's the other side of happiness which is pleasure and enjoyment so, but for this book my my like my major market is is diabetics and people who are obese not necessarily just want to lose like a couple of kilos and and I don't believe that artificially sweetened desserts will actually do them any favors. I think you need to get used to eating savory food. And, and you know, we've made the savory food as delicious as possible, I think. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the blood sugar spike that you'll get and the insulin rush and all of those things that you get from a normal dessert is only slightly lower when you have a sugar-free 
supposed lower carb dessert. So that's why we've left it out. Yeah. But it was a decision. It was a no, lifestyle was, and yeah. an editorial decision. Absolutely, yeah. And you also want people to use the book to drink water with their meals, not yes. fizzy drinks. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Today is Friday. That means tonight a lot of our listeners will be keeping Shabbos, the Jewish Sabbath. Yes. Um, you, you know a little about yes. the laws of kosher. We don't mix meat, meat, mix and milk, no shellfish. Obviously, pork is out as well. What would you recommend for a, for a Shabbos menu? We, we've got some fantastic lamb recipes. Um, the, one la- the one lamb recipe is a, um, a quick sticks donner, and we've also got a slow roasted lamb shoulder with a with a, a paste of um, capers and garlic and lemon zest, which is, I think it's a four-hour roasted lamb shoulder, and that thing is incredible. And then, could, all, yeah? Could we leave that roast uh, in a slow cooker overnight? I mean, that would take it to the next level, certainly, but you could indeed, yeah. And then, and then the vegetable recipes, I think there are 170 vegetable recipes. A couple of them have some shaved cheese on them. You could either skip that or pick a different recipe. I mean, the one I'm looking at now is that one I, I was telling you about, the braising Greek tomato dish called Fasolakia Ladera, which is oh, it's just the most like wholesome green beans cooked in fresh tomato. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, if you just page through this roasted cauliflower with a, with a North African spice rub, you could serve that with toasted pine nuts and a tarator, which is, I think, um, t- it has different names in different cultures, but it's that sesame sauce that you would put over a falafel. So that on some roasted cauliflower with pine nuts is outrageously good. Uh, we've got a few more minutes left. What are your most used uh, Johnnoisms? <laughs> Uh, I think I don't know if I've mentioned it that much in the book, but I say smash quite a lot. Like if you're eating something delicious, you should smash it in your face. But um, apart from that, um, uh, chuck, toss, um, crush. Yeah, I think toss is also a big one. And then what is, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, yes. kombucha and scoby. Okay, so a scoby is actually an acronym and it, it is a, um, a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast and we have no idea how it was made because they've been doing it they've been using it for thousands of years and what they do is they put this scoby which kind of looks like a a waterborne mushroom and they pop it into a sweet sugary tea um and and what it does is ferments the tea and it turns part of the tea into vinegar um so you get this sort of sweet and sour tea but that tea is rich with minerals and nutrients and also good bacteria so when you drink it it's 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 it enriches your gut, which is what I was talking about earlier, with good bacteria and nutrients to feed the bacteria and strengthen your gut lining. Uh, we've got time for one more question. Okay, hit me. You say, master thy kitchen, master thyself. Yes. Are South African men going into the kitchen? And, and what's the idea behind master thy kitchen, master thyself? Yeah, so that goes back to the people who cook recipes and the people who cook, who know how to cook. And um, And in this instance... I believe that if you learn as much as possible about food and how to prepare it, I think that you will be able to have much you'll have much stronger control over what you eat and and stop taking advice from corporations and uh, and people who manufacture food because when you learn to appreciate it um, and you know what to do with it you you are in control um, so that's the philosophy behind that yeah. We've been in conversation with John O'Proudfoot. He's the founder of The Real Meal Revolution. His latest book is Low Carb Cooking, published by Robinson. It is available in the shops, and it is the market leader here in South Africa for low-carb cooking. Thanks. Thanks. It's been a pleasure being here. Until next week, um, 
Good Shabbos and keep reading. Next week we'll be uh, looking at a number of kids' books because all the all children will be on school holidays. I'll be bringing in a few children who've been advanced reading some of the latest kids' titles, and we'll be telling you what to be looking out for your children for holiday reading. Thanks, Jono. It's been great having yeah, you. Thanks again for having me. Why don't we go hit the bra now? Yeah. <laughs>